this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. William Goldman was a screenwriter who won Academy Awards for a few movies, including All the President's Men. He knew that every good movie begins with an inciting event, one that sets the plot into motion. The protagonist of the film has to want something. And for the film to be interesting, there have to be obstacles between what the character, between the character and what he or she wants. In the case of Netflix, there were quite a few of what the screenwriters call complications between the dream of Netflix and the reality. What did our guest this evening want? Well, for his company to succeed. But like all good Roadrunner cartoons or Elmer Fudd hunting Bugs Bunny, he was chasing the impossible. He worked passionately on something that few believed in and was told time and time again, even by the people who loved him, that will never work. Borrowing from the mountaineering metaphor so near and dear to his heart, our guest this evening describes the entrepreneurial journey as full of river crossings, snow fields, cliffs, dangerous animals, and lightning, which could strike at any moment. Now, with the 105 185 million subscribers and a market capitalization of about $230 billion, you know the Netflix story every time you watch the next installment of Ozark. And like any good yarn, this story is chronicled in a phenomenal book called That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. Tonight, you will hear about it from the co-founder and Netflix's first CEO. But there is more to this book than I expected. His memoir is a love story to his dad in heaven and a love letter to his wife, Lorraine, who is here on earth with us. It is a story that recounts how the death of our guest's father 20 years ago put all things in perspective and underscored his story of transformation. It led him to evaluate what truly mattered in life, and it helped him to recalibrate his own definition of success. And what speaks powerfully to the mountaineer in me, in his conclusion, is that almost everything I learned, I learned with a backpack on. But the real clincher, through all the fame and fortune, is the one thing tonight's guest is most proud of, which may come as a surprise to our listeners. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia, and our guest this evening, if you hasn't, haven't guessed, is Mark Randolph, co-founder and the first CEO of Netflix. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chuck. That was quite an intro. I'm, uh, I'm delighted to be here. I can live up to, uh, to that uh, preamble. Well, I have to say, when I read your book, I had certain expectations, if for no other reason, because I'm a big Netflix fan, watched a lot of shows, but I didn't quite know the backstory. 
What I think spoke to me, given this is called a climb to the top and the mountaineer in me, when I read your book, I began to relate to you on a much more personal level than I would have ever thought. Why did you write the book and who did you write the book for beside your dad and your wife? You know, when, when you, I wrote this book, um, 16 years after I left uh, Netflix. So it is a good question. And I think part of it is I began to put into perspective a lot of the things we'd actually done at Netflix. And so certainly one reason is what you brought up was, I don't think many people actually really knew the backstory. Uh, they knew a shorthand version. They, they knew the common um, fable, if you will, that we kind of used to communicate in a nugget what Netflix is about, but no one really knew how it went from this crazy idea that no one thought would ever work into the company that it's become. But I actually wrote it for a second reason, in some ways a more important reason, is that over the last bunch of years, you know, entrepreneurship has become fairly glorified. It's turned into this thing that there's movies about and people think that starting a company is all about getting wealthy or about doing pitches or being on Shark Tank. And I wanted to let people know what doing a startup is really like, that it's not just the business aspects of it, which are story enough, but that so much of it is a personal journey for the entrepreneur. It's how you keep your family together while you essentially in a startup have a second family. Um, how you keep your wits about you, how you get over the disappointments, about the fun parts, uh, the scary parts. I wanted people to feel what it was really like um, doing a startup. I want to read a passage from the book, and, and, and I quote, I didn't love Netflix because I thought it would make me rich. I loved Netflix for the Nerf guns, the water fights, the limericks, coins in the fountain, epic argumentative battles in the conference room. It's interesting because as you began to evolve the story of Netflix, what we didn't realize is you were thinking about personalized baseball bats, personalized shampoo, anything that you could nail. Talk to our listeners about what was in your head way before Netflix about what you set out to do. You know, at the time, well, I had that classic uh, genesis for wanting to do a startup, which was I was going to be fired from my previous job, uh, which is always kind of a nice inciting event, so to speak. Um, and, but I've been an entrepreneur for many, many years, so it was fairly self-evident to me that I'd be doing another startup. Uh, and the question was what? And I was lucky enough that I was being fired from a company in a Silicon Valley sort of way, where they make you stick around for six months and they pay you and they keep investing your stock options and they give you an office to work in, but you've got to stay around for six months. So it was the perfect climate to start. I was also fortunate that the company I was working for would have been founded and run by a gentleman named Reed Hastings, which is Netflix's current CEO. Um, and he also was being fired because he was no longer needed in this new merged company they were forming. And so he also, kind of wanted to keep a hand in the startup game. And so it began this exercise of what are we going to do? And for me, the only thing I wanted to do was start another company and ideally have it involve selling something on the internet. Uh, I had been a direct marketing person, you know, a junk mail king for 20 years earlier in my career. 
And when I saw the internet coming along, this is in 1996, I immediately recognized this is an incredibly fertile chance to do e-commerce, to sell things, to do direct marketing, but in a much more powerful way. But I had no real preconception about what I would sell. I mean, it was not as if I was a film buff, you know, a real student of French cinema. I had very plebeian tastes. I, you know, especially then when I had young kids, I ended up watching Disney movies most of the time. So this was not a passion project. The thing I was passionate about was I loved personalization from the direct marketing thing. So it led to it's the things you described. You know, one of the ideas that I pitched Reed Hastings was personalized sporting goods like baseball bats or surfboards that we could custom build to individual specs. Another one was custom shampoo where you'd cut off a lock of your hair and mail it to us and we'd formulate a custom blend just for you. Um, my favorite of the ones that didn't come to be was doing custom dog food where we formulated a custom blend for your breed, his, your pet's breed, their gender, activity level, climate, you know, you name it. And then the other one we threw out there, which was even more ridiculous than shampoo or dog food, was could we do video rental by mail? Ah, now we're getting somewhere. But there, but there, there is, I love the way you opened up the book because the author in me immediately went to see who are you dedicating this to? <laughs> you dedicated it to Lorraine and thank you Lorraine I love you in spite of the fact you told me it will never work yet that led into the very first chapter which I think is the best lesson for our audience about the epiphany moments talk to us about the or lack thereof when someone has an idea when does it become if ever the epiphany moment yeah, it's funny you talk about epiphany moments because there is this, there must be something in our shared DNA that makes us want that epiphany moment, that <laughs> moment where the fog lifts and it all becomes clear. You know, that, that sense of, I guess, the examples I talked about, you know, Archimedes in the bathtub or <laughs> Isaac, Isaac Newton with the apple falling in his head. And, and all these stories you hear, you know, about, um, uh, eBay coming from an insight about selling a Pez dispenser or, you know, or a, can't get a cab on New Year's Eve and boom, you know, there's a Uber or all these things. They're great stories or even Netflix about a late fee in a movie, but they're just stories because in reality, there is no epiphany moment. These ideas come slowly and they come in little pieces and they're contributions from one person who had a big background in personalization and direct response, but another person who'd spent their career writing algorithms and somebody else who understood how the retail environment worked for video stores. And then maybe someone had a late Vienna movie, but it's only when you begin putting all those pieces together, little by little, something forms. And those first ideas, which seem so promising that you think of the epiphany, well, they end up when you collide them with reality being wrong. And it's just the beginning of this long path of innovation and iteration and experimentation that if you're lucky, you can look back on and go, oh, I think somewhere in that cloud is where it all happened, even if I can't see the exact moment. I want to take 
this storyline back to your past because there were things you immediately identified in the book that helped frame and shape who you are. And it had nothing to do with entrepreneurship. It had to do with two things, survival and climbing mountains. And as I read the book and I, I saw that you were deeply influenced by the, your climbing experience, help our audience to understand what you did in the earlier time that led you up those mountains and how that helped develop the mindset of the twist and turns up the mountain that leads to the success. Well, you know, the first thing you have to know is I've always been an outdoors person. For some reason, it just has always been part of my life. You know, whether I was sneaking out and camping in the backyard when I was like seven or something, you know, due to middle school outing clubs, but I've always been someone who enjoys being out in the woods or on a mountain or in a climb. And the fortunate thing is that when I was 13 years old, my mom packed me up and sent me to Wyoming, of all places, from uh, suburban New York uh, to spend a month in the mountains with an organization called Knowles, which is a national outdoor leadership school. And for me at the time, I thought, this is awesome. They're teaching me all these amazing skills to be safe and comfortable in the mountains. But what I was learning, unbeknownst to me in some ways, was leadership. Because the model they would use is they would break us into small groups of four or five, appoint one leader of the day, and say, you're in charge. And I'm, listen, I'm 13 years old. And off you go. And at the back of the group is the instructor, an adult. And, but I'm making decisions. When do we leave? When do we stop? How long are our breaks? Do we go left and go over the pass or right and go around on by the river? Um, and <laughs> at the end of that day, you recognize very clearly whether your, idea, your judgments were good ones or bad ones, that maybe I shouldn't have taken a two-hour lunch break. Maybe I should have when the person said he was getting a little bit of a blister hot spot in his heel, but I should have stopped and fixed it then rather than telling him, just tough it out. In other words, I was given real responsibility at a very young age where my decisions had real consequences. And Helped a lot I, like Netflix, did it not? Like every startup. <laughs> right. Like it every startup. Have. Right. And, and, and as an advanced skill, which you develop later, where you learn how to communicate with clarity and confidence to your group, where you're going and why, even if internally, you don't quite have the same amount of clarity and confidence you're communicating. Mm -hmm. And that works in the mountains where you're not sure whether it's the pass or the river, it's the exact same thing in a startup. You have to bring your group along. You have to make them understand why you're going the way you're going. You have to believe in what you're doing. You've got to evaluate the strength of your team. You've got to get the boast from everybody. You've got to be situationally aware. I could be talking about leading a climb. I could be talking about doing a startup. And by the time I had to do this for real, meaning in a business environment when I was in my mid to late 20s, well, I'd already been doing it for 15 years. And so a lot of these things which seemed like they were just coming to me, I'd been practicing and developing and working for a long time. Indeed, yet there was something else as I read that, I said, oh, this is speaking to me. You did something else in your teenagers, I think, because you didn't identify the age. But I don't know if it was your parents or your decision, hey, mom and dad, I want you to drop me off in the middle of a city. 
in, in, in the middle of Connecticut. And for three days, you're going to drop me off with no money. And I got to figure out how to get home. Now that was, that was not, because my parents would have like rolled, would have keeled over if I had told them I was doing that. But I, you know, I did, I eventually I said I was a student at Knowles and I ended up doing a bunch of courses, ended up working for the school as an instructor. Right. Um, but every summer I'd spend one month working for somebody else, which was uh, called the Wilderness School. And it was, uh, I mean, I'm not sure what the right term for it, a school for disadvantaged youth maybe, or adjudicated youth or hoods in the woods, you know, you can pick your, your, your whatever that for it. These days, yeah. But what they, the, what we were doing was taking kids out of these urban environments and plunking them down in the wilderness, the chance to realize that their self limits were artificial. They could do more than they thought they could. And so for training for us, they wanted us to have this similar experience. So of course they couldn't plunk us down in the woods. We were old hands, but they could put us in a van, take away our watch and our wallet and our ID and push us out the door of a van in the middle of an urban environment with the promise we'll be back for you in three days. Mm. And do in some ways a urban survival. Right. And that was a remarkable experience for someone who at the time was probably uh, 18 or 19 years old. Well, what I loved is how you then related that to the times in your future, because here you were in the middle of Hartford, Connecticut, asking and begging for change. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And what you describe throughout the course of your book is you needed to raise capital, and which means you needed to persuade people to give you money, no different than surviving on the streets of Hartford. Talk to us about the interrelationship between those survival skills that you honed and the need for the entrepreneurs listening. A lot of my students are listening. What happens when you actually ask people for money? What did you learn from Hartford that you applied to the world at large. Yeah, I'm a big believer that you learn best by doing something rather than reading about it or studying it. And asking for money is no different. And of course, by the second or third day of this urban adventure, I was hungry. And so <laughs> I, I was panhandling. Right. And I figured how hard could that be? And of course, the answer is really hard. There is something about that naked ask, about putting your hand out and saying, I want money and I'm not giving you anything in return. And just getting over being able to ask someone like that and make yourself humiliate yourself in a way is brutal. But eventually, I kind of figured out a truth, which is that the most effective way, at least for me, was to be honest. You know, no BS stories, just I'm hungry because my words would match my appearance. They could tell I needed this money and they could see that I was in fact hungry. And once you have panhandled for 25 cents on the streets of Hartford, Connecticut, that going and asking for 25,000 or $250,000, that, that's pretty easy. That's pretty easy. You're listening to a climb to the top stories of transformation on talk radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia and my guest this evening is Mark Randolph, co-founder and the first CEO of Netflix. Mark, as you thought about your past, as I was reading the book, I kept bringing your past into what was described in the present. And here you are, you have taken away all those other ideas, and now you are developing Netflix. But a lot of things happened on the way to that IPO. Can you describe to our listeners 
the organization at 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, et cetera, what you in particular had to do to adjust to the changing circumstances of both what you talk about always being on the brink of success and failure. How did you manage yourself and others throughout that growth? Well, that's a good question because it's one of the hardest challenges of growing a company is that each time you scale and you are giving me logarithmic jumps here, you change everything. It's not just more people. It's a whole different structure. When there's 10 people, it's pretty easy to know what everyone's doing at any time, even without asking them. You don't need status reports. You can overhear them. Uh, and for the most part, you've hired people at that stage where there's 10 people where you completely trust their judgment and their initiative and their alignment with you. And the challenge is as you go from 10 to 100, that doesn't work anymore. Not only do you not know what's going on, you may not even know these people. Right. And especially when it gets to 1,000. But it turns out that there is this magnetic field um, that does keep people aligned, that does allow an organization to function as if it's still following its founders' ideals and objectives and strategies. And it's really a culture. And I think probably the biggest contribution you know, that I made to a company like Netflix. And the biggest contribution any founder really makes is establishing that culture because that allows people to make decisions independently by knowing internally what's right, well, what, what I, supports where we're going. What I really enjoyed is throughout the course of the journey, you and the organization laid down the guiding principles of the culture and they were freedom, responsibility, and radical honesty. But what I loved about how you wrote is radical honesty is great until it's aimed at you. <laughs> and we'll get to there. But let's talk about, and I think this is so important for my engineering students at Columbia, who many of which aspire to form their own company. How important was it to codify simple rule of three, three guiding principles, and why those? So uh, first of all, I got I to make clear, they're never really codified because culture, at least in my belief, is not something you say or write down or carve in the cornerstone of your building. It's what you do. That, that is what people pay attention to. That is what they model on. But the, the point is that you said that's freedom and responsibility and radical honesty. Those are the cornerstones of probably the Netflix culture and of almost every startup that I've done. It's just who I am. But it really comes back again to the story we told earlier about being in the mountains. Because in the mountains, when you have a handful of people, you know, you do not have rules about where you're going to go. You basically go, I can see the mountain over there, and I have a rough idea of the route, but I have no idea, because I can't see it from here, how fast the river's running, and whether I can cross here, or whether I've got to go a mile upstream, whether I can go up the face, because it's too cliffy, or go around, or maybe we split up. And the people who need to get this way carrying the gear go one way, those who are going to scout go a different way. It's dynamic and it's fluid and we're evaluating we go, but we have the shared objective. We all know we're going to get to the top and how we do it, what speed and what skills we use differ based on who we are. And in a startup, it's exactly the same thing. You do not have time to tell everybody which way to go and here's how to do your job. You do the same thing. You go, see that mountain peak? you know, over there, that's where we're going. I'll meet you there in three weeks. And each of you 
who's going to have to make your own judgments, overcome your own obstacles based on the thing that you know you're responsible for achieving. And lo and behold, three weeks later, there's 10 people on top of the mountain, bloodied and bruised, who all had to solve problems, but they had the freedom to pick their route, to do it the way they felt best at the time, but the responsibility to show up. Indeed. Yet what many of us, I certainly didn't know it when I read the book, is the trials and tribulations that were causing you even to question the viability of the organization, whether or not we're going to survive. And you talked about your peaks and you talked about your valleys, but you got to a point where you were even considering, oh my God, what if we sell this? Because what other choice do we have? And the best story in the book for anyone who is reading this is Mark and the CFO and Reed were at the airport, wherever they were in California, and they flew to Dallas. And they flew to Dallas to meet with Goliath, to meet with the giant blockbuster video. And when you walked in, you were a $5 million organization about to meet a $6 billion organization. Why were you contemplating at the time, even thinking about selling to Blockbuster? Well, ironically, at the time, we were going broke being successful, which is the worst scenario you can imagine. Now, I'd rather a, go broke being a failure than being successful. Yeah, this was two and a half years, you know, two and a half years after we started the company and two and a half years of struggle to figure out a repeatable, scalable business model. All the people who said that'll never work, well, they were right, and it didn't work. And we had to try everything, but we eventually had come up with something that worked, and it worked so well that customers were flooding in. But we were giving them all first month free and charging a subscription. So we were spending all the money in acquisition up front and recovering it slowly. And when you do that really fast, it's really expensive. And then layered on that was the dot-com crash of 2000. So just when we needed money, nowhere to be found. And so we did the thing that a prudent entrepreneur does when they're stuck there is they pursue strategic alternatives, as the expression goes, which basically means we got to sell this thing. And the obvious strategic alternative was Blockbuster. And that's what led us to be parading into the 27th floor conference room of Blockbuster in Dallas, Texas, to pitch them on spending $50 million to acquire us. Now, I want to say to our listeners, because it's hard to believe there are many listening who may not have even heard of Blockbuster, because if there is one store left in Bend, Oregon, <laughs> as you described, maybe you'll go, go and say hello. But I want to describe, because I think this is such a wonderful story of walking into the first thing that you had noticed about the CEO is his loafers were more expensive than my automobile. <laughs> but you also recognized here you were and he asked you for a number and you gave him a number what you thought the right acquisition was and he tried not to laugh. What happened subsequent to that event when you went back to California thinking, okay, we're not going to do this. Was this potentially the best thing that happened to you guys? It may be in retrospect. Right, at the time, <laughs> yeah, I know, I, I read on the plane, you're all beaten up and you're quiet on the plane going home, but I think it's a seminal event and worth discussing here. 
No, I, I agree. And the thing is, you know, I do tell this whole story in the book, and it is an incredibly crazy uh, uh, event, including what led up to it. But the thing is, it took us months to get that meeting. And when we did, we were so excited because we thought our problems are solved. Right. You know, this is it. This is the, as in screenwriting, the deus ex machina, <laughs> the, the hand from God, which plucks the, our plucky heroine and saves her from sudden danger. Um, we thought that was it. And now here we were slinking out with our tails between our legs because not only was Blockbuster not gonna save us, they were gonna compete with us. Right. Trying to and crush us. And there was this moment on the plane where I think it struck us all that there was no easy way out. There, we had tried everything. There were no end runs. There was no stumbling on something that was going to change the situation that it, my dad used to sometimes say, you know, Mark, sometimes the only way out is through. And we were realizing this was one of those times that if we were going to save our company, that we had to do it ourselves. And it really was this realization that we now had a focus on a totally different thing, which was survival. Indeed, to our listeners on 77WABC, I am communicating that we are about to wrap up live on the show in about two minutes. But what I'm asking you to do if you are listening on your computer is to switch to our YouTube channel. You can go to YouTube, just Google Chuck Garcia, and you will find the continuation of what will be the full interview. Mark, in the time that we have remaining on WABC, and we're going to go deeper into the book in the next section that will be the full version. What do you want the budding entrepreneurs to think, feel, and do about the possibility of them creating their thing when people will tell them that will never work? What I can really say is that, first of all, you started the segment by talking about William Goldman, the screenwriter, and you left out the most important thing that he's ever written, besides all the President's Men and you know Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which was he wrote that he does nobody knows anything, and it's true in screenwriting. It is absolutely true in startup land that anytime someone says that'll never work, they have no clue. That the only way to figure out if your idea is a good one is to try it, to build something or make something or test something. Because the reality is, and this is, this is it, you're going to learn more in one day of doing it than you are in six months of dreaming about it. So, you know, get off your butt and start. And what Mark talked about in the book is everybody goes into the shower every morning, the shower and a towel off. And it's the ones that go out and go and do it. Stop thinking about it and go out and do. Ideas are cheap. You know, it's action that counts. And the really successful entrepreneurs are the ones who, not the ones who have great ideas, it's the people who start the process of figuring out why their idea is a bad one and then being persistent enough to keep trying things until they eventually figure it out. Well, for those of you that are listening, we are signing off here. Mark, thank you very much for coming on to A Climb to the Top on Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Chuck. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Same here. And we are just going to hang on here. We're going to keep recording. So I'm just going to, we're going to edit that off. How are we doing so far? Am I, are my answers too long? <laughs> <laughs>
No, no, not at all. In fact, I tried to. In fact, I really like how you picked up on, on uh, William Goldman. I purposely left that out and I wanted to leave with uh, and nobody knows anything. And maybe we'll get into when we now get into the next part. I wanted to make sure on the timing, you got enough time. If we've got another 20 minutes, is that okay? Perfect. I'm all set. Great. I'm, I'm going to do just a slight lighting adjustment. It's raining. I live about 20 minutes from where you used to live. I live in Portland Manor and we're having a rainy day here. So it's all, all coming on here. Okay. That's much better lighting. Okay. What we're going to do then is when we switch in, I want to read a passage from the book. Um, another passage from the book because it does involve another member of your family. I had so many stories that I loved, but this is one in, um, bear with me for just a second. Let me just find that. Um, Okay, here we are. We're just going to now, Chris, when you're editing here, we're going to pick up. Welcome back. Hi, it's Chuck Garcia, and my guest is Mark Randolph, as you've just heard on Talk Radio 77W ABC. For those of you that have switched over to the YouTube channel, thank you very much for coming here. Mark, I want to explore a couple things, because I said at the onset, I didn't expect your book to be to pay homage to your dad, which to my dad I lost at 56, and I think about our fathers in our lives. You dedicated the book to Lorraine, yet one of the most heartwarming stories here was the day you went public. And on the NASDAQ, Netflix came out and you saw it come across the screen at $16, I think in 19 cents, and your son Logan was with you. And on those days when you knew you went public, you and Reed hugged, your other friends were there, yet that evening at the end of the day, you and Logan got into a taxi and you headed to any of the New Yorkers know in the village, raise pizza. And here you were having just gone public, a multi-million dollar event. And instead of going to LaBernadine, you shared a slice of pizza with your son. Logan, if you are listening to this by chance, I want you to tell your dad how much you love him. Because as a father of four kids myself, I can't think of anything better if I were in that event than to do that with my children. Why'd you write that? Uh, that's, it's, it's true. I'm kind of getting a, a, a little emotional chill just thinking about the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, because that, that day, um, IPO, it's in some ways almost an out-of-body experience because it's this mythologized event it's what's held out in front of every entrepreneur as the ultimate payday, where all the promises you've made to your founders and all the promise your employees and to your investors and to your family who put money in, that's the moment. But you know, when the actual moment comes along, you're not really quite sure what to think because you kind of go, I'm the same person. You know, I guess I could not work if I don't want to, but I kind of want to work. And I, I'm going to have to go back to work on Monday anyway. <laughs> right. And so you really begin kind of connecting to the things that, that are, are important. And it didn't make sense to me to have this fancy meal or have some ostentatious display of wealth, which really didn't mean much to me. But, you know, my son, I grew up in New York. Yes. My son. You're me. California. <laughs> and it has been a, was a perennial uh, dinner table discussion about how lame, Pizza is every place except 
except for Manhattan. <laughs> Where you grew up, right? Of course. And so, you know, listen, I go, here we are in New York. Let's see, am I going to go to a fancy restaurant or am I going to go to the Museum of Natural History or am I going to go to some store? And fit? No, we're going to go to the village and I'm going to have you taste what real New York pizza tastes like. Indeed. And I can't think of a better possible way to have commemorated that day for me and for him. Oh, Mark, I read that and I read it again and I read it again. But you, you paid so much love and respect to your father, so much so that when the book ended and we saw Randolph's Rules for Success, please describe to our listeners the impact your dad had on you. And he actually did codify those rules because I actually tacked them up onto the blackboard in my classroom. And here is Randolph's Rules of Success. Tell us about the impact your father had and I hope is inspirational to our new fathers and what your dad left you with. You know, it's, it's, you're always trying to evaluate the impact your upbringing had on you. And I think one thing, of course, is my dad clearly is the one who implanted that love of the outdoors on me. And I, for that, I am so eternally grateful that's my happy spot. And anyone who's found their happy spot early in life is blessed. And he gave me that. But he also gave me the risk-taking because he was always the person who no matter what cockamamie scheme I came back with, I mean, for example, you know, one time I, came, I, was, I was in seventh grade and I came back and go, hey, guess what? I'm going to go caving because someone was going to take me caving up in Albany, New York. And whereas most families would have gone, what are you, crazy? You're going to go underground, you're going to get killed. <laughs> you know, he was going, oh, that sounds fantastic. Almost every fork in the road that revolved risk, he was the one going, oh, gosh, how exciting to go down the risk path. And I think in some ways it's because he, he was a Wall Street guy. He never did. I think it was a Walter Mitty-ish thing for him. But he implanted that in me, and boy, is that impacted uh, impacted everything. But fundamentally, this is the big one, yeah. is he was, as a, he was a mensch. He was a nice guy. Right. And his biggest lesson, you were, I'm not gonna say them, but in the book, they are the Randolph rules of success, but they are not business rules. These are the right. rules that the day, evening before I started my first job, he pulled out a pad and a pen, longhand wrote out, the rules for success, tore them off and gave them to me. Right. And I kind of thought they might be things like, you know, buy low and sell high or happiness <laughs> is positive, <laughs> positive cash flow or something like that. But they were all rules about how to be a good person. Right. You know, to be respectful up and down, you know, to quantify when possible, to not express opinions on things you don't know anything about. Right. And what I've learned is that's absolutely the key to success. It's, you can be a decent person. You can have all these things in your life, but it's, it's not about being a hard ass. It's not about being mean. It's not about money first. That you can be a decent person. And that is the fundamental lesson, I think, that I'm so grateful he gave to me. Well, what I really wanted to open with, I and mean, I'm glad I did, is it helped you to recalibrate your definition of success. Because so many of the budding entrepreneurs talk about money and growth and just forget everything else. But you didn't. Because the love letter in this book to the people who you loved and who loved you back 
really helped keep you grounded on what success meant to you. And I hope to our listeners, you find inspiration in that because Mark strove to find the balance to be able to define success on his terms that could not have come without the love from the people in his life, including your mom. And I want to relate a story. And I'd like you, Mark, to pick up on this is you needed some money in Netflix. And your mom had started a real estate business in Westchester County. Now you had panhandled on the streets of Hartford. So you figured, what the heck? I've learned all of these skills. You went to your mom and you said, mom, I got to ask, I need something. Relate that story. Cause I think that. <laughs> well, you know, it's one thing p pitching investors. It's one thing pitch, but pitching, pitching your, your mom. mom right? uh, and you know, and in some ways it was this ritual, this kabuki theater where we all had these time honored roles to play. Uh, and of course it really did, it brought me back to being you know, a kid and tugging on my mom's sleeve and going, can I have 25 cents to buy French fries at the snack bar? <laughs> no, it's at this time. It didn't I, stop being the little boy asking mom for something. You, you can't help it. And I know that, you know, we had to go through the act. I had to like picture, show her the slides, talk her through the economics. And I'm sure she's going, what? Oh, this is ridiculous in her mind. But she knows she's going to have to invest. I know eventually she's going to say yes. But we still go through the whole, the whole thing. But you know, it, the great here's the great part is she did eventually write a check for twenty five thousand dollars. And this was at the, before we had anything, ground zero. And she was, I'm sure, she thought to herself. I am never going to see that money again. Indeed. And we even had a joke and she goes, you know, when this, when this pays off, I'm going to buy a big apartment on the Upper East Side in Manhattan for myself. And she did. And she did. And she and did. That was, you know, there's some fun things about when the success does hit and having the people who believed in you at the very beginning, have it pay off for them. That's an incredible feeling. I want to finish up then with a, a lesson in the book that I thought to me as it related to the business portion of what you built was incredibly important. And let me provide some context. I don't know if society has changed, but a lot of people want to be perfect at everything. They want to double minor and triple major, and they want to do everything all the time. And they want to be all things to all people. But you described something in the book that I read and reread called the Canada Principle. As you were contemplating about, do we expand? What do we do? Can you talk about the importance of the Canada Principle as it relates to staying in your lane and moving up the mountain one step at a time? You know, one of the questions I get most frequently is, you know, what, what, are, what do most entrepreneurs do wrong? What makes startups go off the rails? And it's because people try and do everything. And the reality is in a startup where everything is on fire, there's way more to fix than you have time or resources to fix, not to mention the initiatives you want. You quickly realize that it's better to take all my attention and put it on one or two things and ignore the rest. And if I pick wisely, it'll make the rest go away. And, and we call that Netflix the Canada principle because early on, everyone's saying, we should be in Canada. We were only in the United States. This is back when our business was mailing DVDs to people. Uh, and people said, it's easy. It's a 10% bump. 
because 10%, that's about the size of the market, um, of the Canadian market. And it didn't take a lot of analysis to go what seems like low-hanging fruit is not low-hanging fruit at all. I mean, it's different currency. You have different rights for the content. You have different language spoken in different parts of Canada. And you do the math and you go, yeah, I'd get 10% more revenue perhaps, but the effort, if I took that same effort and applied it to my core business, it would return way more than a 10% bump. And that was the reminder that we had to stick to our knitting, stay focused on the most important thing. And it's not always easy. I mean, for example, in the UK, they launched a Netflix clone. And of course, some people in the organization are running around, we've got to do something before they get a foothold. And you've got to go, no, as you said, stay in your lane. We're much, much better putting the effort we require to do an international operation on making our U.S. one stronger and better and learning. There'll be a time and we'll be so much better prepared to take that on then. That's and, the key on that principle and it applies to everybody. Yeah, and I suspect is, is it was, I don't know if it was as explicit in the book, but part of your power, your, your road to success was resisting the impulse to do too much in a world you weren't exactly sure what it is we were supposed to do. Did it feel that way? <laughs> yeah, because I loved reading it that way because it's like, oh, you, I love the way you described it. Oh, do we do this? Do we do that? I don't know. Just try. But in the end... Yeah, by your, very, by your very nature, you have no... A startup, you have no clue. You're doing something no one's done before. You right. really don't have these guideposts to know what it should look like. But you have the discipline to say, here's what we're going to try this week and put everything you've got and without getting married to it. Because if the results don't come back the way you've got to be able to say, abandon that, put away. I know we had work on it, throw it away. Now we're doing something different. And you do that week after week for years at a time. But that in its twisted way is what is so fun about being an entrepreneur. What we want to leave our audience with is when I opened up, the thing that you are most proud of. And when I read the book and I have the book in my hand and I close the book and I put it on my heart and I said, oh my God, spoken like a loving dad, spoken like a loving son, like a generous kind sort who loves the people who love you back. Share if you would, Mark, what was the, the thing that made you most yeah, you know, you, you t I talked about what I got from my father, and I, part of it was where I grew up, and I grew up in a very affluent community in the suburbs of New York, New York City, um, and surrounded by rich, powerful people who, a lot of them, were miserable. And so in many ways, the gift that I was given was this realization that being rich and powerful is not the same thing as being happy. And I kind of quickly glommed onto the fact that if I was going to do this, I had to pay attention to the things that were important, and which was my family, which was my friends, which was my being outdoors. And I kind of vowed early on that I was not going to be this entrepreneur who was on his sixth company, but also on his sixth life. Right. And from the beginning, it was a priority. I mean, two seconds, but I, I got to tell you the story is that, you know, we had this thing is every Tuesday, we would set aside date night, no excuses. 
I would leave the office at five sharp. If there was a crisis, well, damn it, we're going to solve it by five. <laughs> you've got to talk to me, we're going to talk in the way of the car. But it not only made me pay attention to the really important things, but it showed everyone else that I wasn't just blowing air when I said, you've got to have balance in your life. And so to answer the question, I'm sorry for the long meander, no, no, it's important. Good. Great. The, you know, I've had a hand in, in starting seven companies and two of them were mega successes and I've had other IPOs and I've done a lot of things that a lot of entrepreneurs aspire to. But the thing that I'm proudest of is not starting these companies. It's not overcoming these business obstacles. It's that I did all those things while staying married to the same person while having my kids grow up knowing me and as best I can tell, liking me. <laughs> like <it. laughs> and that I've done so also while feeding myself the things that I know are important, getting out and doing backcountry skiing or mountain biking or surfing and still having time to build what I think were important companies. And that, that balance, that a focus on family, friends and your personal interest, that is what I'm proud of. And it didn't sound, or it sounds like the apple didn't fall far from the tree because your daughter is now in Knowles. Is she not, or she was? Yeah, she's a Knowles instructor, right. uh, which is, and all my, she actually, she is, she is my outdoors buddy. I mean, she has this passion that's even deeper than mine, which is such a wonderful, to what degree I gave her that gift, I'm delighted. Um, you know, and, but all, and all my kids are outdoorsy, you know, and I got to tell you that there is something, there's nothing like surfing with your kids hmm. where you're yeah. all out. In Not the on water. a mountain, you're on the water. <laughs> Any of those things. We did this trip just about a, a, a month, six weeks ago. Myself, all three of my kids went backpacking together for four days. Ah, cool. Uh, doesn't get, get better than that. that. Wow, that's fantastic. And then we're going to finish up. Um, you wrote the book, You Wanted Distance, from the time the events occurred that the Netflix has certainly come a long way, but everybody knows that story. I want us to tell the story that hasn't been told. What have you been doing? Because it sounds like you're working again in the service of others. What, well, <laughs> what, did, you, what did you then do and what are you doing now if it changed? Well, you know, Netflix was startup number six. And when that was done, when I left Netflix, uh, I did not want to start another company. I had a lot of other projects I wanted to do. I wanted to have more time, but there was no way I'm going to give up being an entrepreneur. That's part of me. I can't stop. And so I kind of quickly realized that there was a way to do that where I could mentor other early stage entrepreneurs and hopefully give them the same success that I had. But this was not altruistic. This was my chance that I could get that same thing I cherished as an entrepreneur, where you sit around the table with really smart people and solve really cool problems. And I could do that with their problems. And even better, I could get up and leave at five o'clock and then they'd have to stay up all night solving the problems. But the other last thing I'll, I'll leave you with here is that you know one of the reasons I wrote That Will Never Work is this realization that all of these same tips and tricks and secrets that I've learned over 40 years as an entrepreneur are not just business tips and tricks. They're the tricks that anybody with an idea or a dream or a challenge can use to make their dream come true. 
And so now I try and spend my time teaching, writing, speaking, letting people know that if they have an idea, that you can make your idea real, that there's very, very concrete things you can do to get started and ultimately uh, make progress. Yeah, indeed. And I think to our listeners here, I would highly recommend to my students, you will be reading this. But if you, if you are not assigned the book, the thing I loved most, Mark, about this book, as we opened up, it was a love story. And when do you see somebody writing a book that led you to an IPO where many people would close the book and call it a day and look what I've done? But you took a very different approach, and I read a book that I didn't expect. So first, thank you for coming on to the show. Second, thank you for writing the book. It was absolutely wonderful. And when and I've read every leadership book, I think, known to man, and I read this book, this was a different approach. And I got to ask, is this the book you intended to write? No, of course. <laughs> As you were writing it, where did Logan and Hunter and Morgan and Lorraine and your mom and your dad, that to me is what this book was about. Where did they begin to filter into this? You know, at, at first, this was a self-help book. In fact, the proposal I made to publishers was the self-help book, which was here's all the tips and tricks you can use to make your idea come true. Right. But of course, as you begin writing and you begin, it's a process. You begin graphing out on whiteboards and you put the stories and you're connecting the dots and seeing the themes. It's so amazing how things reveal themselves to you that you did not know were there. Right. These in influences, what was right, what was wrong. You begin thinking about what was this contribution? It's a remarkable inner journey. And what became very clear is how much I owed to people. Part, yes, to my family, yes, to my friends, yes, to my coworkers, that this is not about, this was not about me. Um, this is about a lot of people. And I really wanted to make sure that that, that, that came across. And, and I, I, I don't want to dismiss Reed. Um, because you, oh, at, yeah. at the end of the book, and I, we didn't talk, he's doing fine, it seems like. <laughs> but at the end of the book, you, you, Reed was brutally honest with you. And when you described that, he actually, in telling you, you're not the complete CEO, um, you're relying too much on the board. Oh, and while you're at it, I'm going to take a bunch of shares that were given to you, and I'm going to give them to me. And you went home, and Lorraine said, you got to be kidding me, no way, without. <laughs> but you did pay respects to your friendship. And the impact because what was great about the book was the left brain, right brain, the analytical side. The read was the math guy. You were the customer service guy. And you need the left and the right in order to balance the ship. Did you know you two were going to do it that way or did that just happen organically? Oh, I knew we'd do it that yeah. way. From the minute I met him, right. there was a connection. Right. And it was. It's a left brain, right brain. Uh, it was a complete, com we knew, both of us knew that the sum of the parts was, you know, the whole was bigger than some of the parts or however that expression goes. Because it was, the, 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 it, for any startup, usually a two-person team is a more stable configuration, but especially for Reed and I. And we share these cultural things. Um, and it was so remarkably wonderful having a chance to work with him. He's a genius. He's a great, incredible yeah. entrepreneur. But um, I think, I what think a gift. It, but it, it lays the foundation of everything you described about rather than just hiring people who do what you do, 
Because I think a lot of the entrepreneurs and people that come to me looking for advice, they want to hire people like them. And your point was, no, you got it backwards. Go find the people that you can build around because you need all of those talents, not just yours. No, I mean, the, the, certainly we spend a lot of time these days culturally talking about diversity, but diversity isn't just gender and it isn't just skin color and it isn't just where you grow up. Diversity means diversity of opinion, diversity of thought, diversity of thought process. And that's the most valuable thing you can have. And, but you've got to pair it with an atmosphere where you can argue, where you can disagree, where you can air those differences in a way that allows all these perspectives to be considered. And that was the beauty, I think, of the relationship that I had with Reed and the culture we built for everyone. We had a lot of people who were very smart, very opinionated, very, very different insights, but also created a culture where all those things could be tolerated and shared and appreciated, and ultimately, way, way better judgments come out of that. Indeed, and now as, as we conclude here and you look at where Netflix is today, is this where you would have expected it to end up? Oh, never. <laughs> I mean, you know, Netflix is way different than I ever expected it to be. You, you if, I had, if I had come in and pitched you on what, what it is now, you know, make your own movies, do your own TV shows, if I had told you there's going to be a thing called Netflix and chill, I mean, you, would, <laughs> right. you would have had me committed. So uh, You can't make that up. You can't make that up. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much. I'm going to, I'm going to shut the recorder off in, in, in and I want to chat for just a second. But to all of our listeners, thank you as always for tuning in. We love hearing from you. Follow us on Instagram. You can always reach out to me on, on chuckgarcia.com. Let us know what you think of the show. If you have any ideas or you have any guests that you think want to come on. And this is all about your transformation, about climbing to the top of your proverbial mountain and bringing on great guests like Mark, who I hope can inspire and to provoke a change in your own transformation. So Mark, thank you so much for coming on to the show. It was a pleasure to collaborate with you. Oh, thanks, Chuck. This was really fun. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.